This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. We have got a special Upper Peninsula guest on the line today. He is State Senator Ed McBroom from Dickinson County, a Republican. Uh, that is a huge district he represents up there, 38th Senate District. I think it's all of the UP, 12 counties except for the three easternmost counties. That would be Chippewa, Mackinac, and I believe Luce. Senator Ed McBroom, thank you for joining us on The Political Insider. Hey, my pleasure, Bill. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, what your address is really uh, like uh, there are three different communities. You got <laughs> Vulcan and Norway and what else? So I live in a place called Wasita and uh, means meeting of the pines. It was the first community to mine iron ore in the South Menominee Range. Wow. Historic. This is fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I live in a, what used to be the old log cook shack in the 1870s. Jeez, uh. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh well, I mean, let me ask you, are you a hunter? Because supposedly the legislature is on a hunting break now. Are you a hunter yourself or not? So I end up doing most of my hunting during the summer months when I'm protecting my crops from the deer. Um, I have guys who come out to the farm and hunt during the regular season, and I occasionally go out and help them. You think there are a lot of uh, trolls from south of the bridge up there uh, <laughs> roaming around the woods this weekend uh, hunting, do you think, or not? Well, on my drive home from Lansing the other day, I certainly passed plenty of vehicles that uh, looked like that's what they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, look, I, I want to talk about two issues today, one in this segment, and then we're going to take a short break and come back on the second segment. Uh, these are really complex, at least to me. I have a hard time understanding them. One of them involves fix the damn roads, believe it or not. I mean, the question of whether there is a gravel shortage in Michigan, uh, and there was an audit done of a Department of Transportation report on this, and it was very controversial. Will you tell us what is going on here? What is this all about? (laughs) Well, I'll do the best I can. Uh, this problem actually dates back well over 30 years um, when there's been different disputes between uh, local communities and uh, private property owners who want to mine their gravel. And um, for a long time, uh, it was really determined by uh, courts, um, and there was a practice, a case law that was followed, and uh, even consent decrees were issued. And that was how things went along until the mid-2000s when uh, a case came along that the court basically turned it over and said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. And the way the law stands, the townships have this uh, ability under the new zoning. And so that created a real problem. Um, Suddenly gravel pits weren't getting put in. Um, People were saying no to them left and right. I had some in this area that were done uh, for obvious political local reasons between guys who are on the board versus local residents and they didn't <laughs> one guy had the gravel that he was proving the other guy didn't so we passed a law in 2011 um matt hookie sponsored that he was from the keweenaw this is this um, this is in the state legislature you passed that's the right law. yeah yep and so we passed that law 
really setting it back to the way it had been by case law for a long time and basically said the townships, you know, this is private property issue. You have gravel. It's a state resource. The Constitution calls on those resources to be developed. Um, and the township has the authority to dictate hours of operation, noise, dust, and a few other things. But unless there is a, and this was added towards the end, unless there is a significant health or welfare issue, the township has to go ahead and permit that. And as far as environmental issues, that's left up to the state DEQ. Um, so that worked for a few years, but then um, what seems to be happening, and this is subject to debate, is that townships, some of them are now using that final clause about significant health and welfare issues to say no to a lot of these operations. And what's in particular, what's even more interesting is townships that say yes are now being sued by their citizens for not using that clause that says significant health and welfare. And so the turmoil that is resulting right now is real. There's many townships um, that are being sued by locals or being sued by gravel pit operators and owners. Um, and so it's a real mess. And so out of this, um, both last term and now this term, legislations come forward to really take that provision out and just, you know, leave the townships again with the hours of operation, noise, dust, and a few other local ordinances. Um, so in the midst of all this, I think in an effort to be helpful, maybe, uh, MDOT and uh, Rick Snyder's 21st Century Commission for Transportation said, hey, let's have a study on the availability of aggregates. And, oh, sure, we know what the answer is going to be. And so they, uh, they quick put this study together, and there's definitely some emails and things that float between the Aggregates Association and the MDOT director and project manager that don't look very good, that look very much like putting your fingers on the scale. Um, and so that study was conducted in a very hasty way that violated a number of MDOT's internal policy procedures, and, and they broke it into two so they could make sure it stayed underneath the, the $50,000 threshold so they could expedite it. And now... Um, you know, word of this has gotten out. And so suddenly we're faced with these two audits, one from the Audit Transportation Commission, and we took those up in my committee this past week because it's ugly. It, it's really shameful what happened. It doesn't necessarily change the overall issue that I detailed was going on for all these years, um, but not having this study available certainly doesn't help the case, and it makes people that much more suspicious of their government. Yeah, when you say aggregates, of course, you mean gravel, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Sand aggregates, and gravel, gravel. Is typically what's incorporated in that, yes. Yeah. And so you're saying basically there's still the outlying issue there of whether we do have um, the. A shortage. A, a shortage of gravel reserves in the state. And, you know, there's a particular areas in the state, like around Metamora, apparently, there's an activist local environmental property owner group that does not want uh, gravel being developed there, apparently. Isn't that part of this whole issue? That's a, a big part of the Metamora Township, and the Friends of Metamora are a big player in this whole debate and ongoing discussion, yes, and there's a lot of controversy there. Well, I mean, I would imagine if you took this clause uh, out of the law that you referred to, Mm -hmm. uh, these environmental or property owner groups, they won't like that. They'll fight taking out that clause, right? Because they're hanging 
their ability to stop this gravel development on that clause, right? That's absolutely what's happening right now, yes. Well, how do you think this is all going to play out at this point? And and how do you separate the question about the two audits, or at least one of the two audits, from the whole issue of whether we have adequate aggregate reserves in the state and whether they're going to meet the demands by the state uh, to, let's face it, fix the damn roads over the next 30 to 50 years? Well, I think that it's absolutely critical that we lay out the timeline like I did right here to say, okay, this um, issue has predated this study. This study itself might be corrupted. It might not be something that we can utilize. Maybe there's some data points we feel comfortable with, but let's, let's not worry about it. The issue predates the study. The solutions predate the study. So we have to move beyond the problem of the study, and that's why my committee took up the audits to give voice to this bad government practice and to check in with the department and the director and say, you need to fix these problems that are going on with your, with your employees. But we still have to come back to the real problem and identify how bad is this problem? Is it real? Is this the right solution? How do we protect both local control and how do we also protect private property rights and the rights of all the state of Michigan to its natural resources, resources that belong to all of us, but are not everywhere. They're in certain specific areas, and we have to uh, develop those as needed. Well, it's a real sticky wicket. Uh, you got a big challenge ahead of you. I know you're up to the task, and uh, congratulations on tackling it. And thank you very much for that lucid explanation. We are going to come back with you, Senator Ed McBroom, in just a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Senator Ed McBroom from the 38th State Senate District, Republican of rural Norway, rural Vulcan. I, I'm not even going to ask you uh, to pronounce again the other community up there, but it's in Dickinson County uh, in the Upper Peninsula. He did a great job of explaining the uh, controversy over Michigan aggregates, which is related to fix the damn roads in our first segment. But now this is really a challenge. There was a bill or actually a package of bills. I think there's seven of them all together uh, that went through the Senate last month. And it relates to livestock law and That's right. uh, updating it, reforming it. And there was one particular bill, the main bill that had provisions about egg-laying hens, and that really got Senator McBroom's dander up. And so I'm going to ask you, Senator, to explain again, as you did in the last segment about another issue, why was this package of bills brought up in the first place? Why is the legislature addressing this? Why are they doing it? And then I want to ask you why you objected so vociferously to this one provision. Sure. Well, you know, one thing that I think a lot of us always forget, whether it's federal law or state law, is that we like to think exactly what passed and exactly what's in the Constitution and in the bill is the full extent of the law. But there's another aspect to it, and that's case law and executive orders. And so it's been a long time since the Michigan Animal Industries Act have been updated, and a lot of case law and executive orders in particular have happened in that interim. 
And so the law becomes pretty messy and hard to understand because you read something in there and it says this is what should happen, but then that's exactly not what's going on. And you find out, oh, it's because the governor used the Type 2 transfer capabilities, moved that responsibility to somebody else, things that I object to but are legal and constitutional. Uh, And so it became, you know, over the years, the pressure builds to update the law and have it actually um, say what it's supposed to say um, or what's in practice. And so that was the effort here was to update that whole law. And in the meantime, there were some important issues that got added, particularly in this case on emergency issues, if there's animal disease outbreaks, indemnification and things like that. And so the very large Animal Industry Act came up and then there was six other bills that went along with it that are very tightly related to that kind of satellite. I had two of them, you know, defining um, farm dogs and wolf crosses, some things like that that were important to go at the same time and update a lot of definitions. So the last time the law really was updated, as I understand it, was back in like 2009. I think maybe that was even before you got in the state house, wasn't it? You were elected the state house before in the Senate. No, so the last time the Animal Industries Act had had a complete rewrite and revamp is farther back than that. I think it's in the 60s. Um, And so the 2009 issue, though, is where the controversy came up. Okay, what happened? So in 2009, uh, a group, Humane Society of the United States, which, you know, just briefly used to be an organization made up of veterinarians and animal groups, but in the late 90s was taken over by um, animal rights activists, got rid of most of their experts and became mostly lobbyists. And uh, it's a pretty crazy story. And so they've become, their mission is to end animal agriculture across the country. And um, they were led for many, many years by Wayne Pacelli. Anyway, they threatened Michigan and a number of other states in the late 2000s with uh, easy access to ballot systems like we do for initiatives, referendums, proposals. Uh, they had had very much success in California um, limiting veal, pigs, and chicken issues. Um, Because people don't understand how agriculture works anymore. So it's very easy for them to paint a very bleak, ugly picture, and they find a couple of bad actors and say, see, this is what all bad farmers are doing. And so they came in 2009, said, we're going to run the table on you guys unless you will bargain with us. And eventually the pork, veal, and chicken guys stopped fighting. And they came to the legislature and said, please, please pass this law that regulates ourselves so HSUS doesn't come into our state and run a ballot initiative. And that, that law basically undid veal. There's no veal left in the state. And it took away farrowing crates for pigs and forced pigs to farrow now in pens instead, which is dangerous for the piglets but looks better on TV. And for the chickens, it was change the cage size. And so for egg-laying hens, they went from the cages that they were typically in, a couple of animals in each cage, and they're small. I'm not debating that. And um, some people have a problem with that. I didn't. The chickens were healthy and fine and doing their job. And so they wanted this bigger cage. And so the legislature capitulated to that, passed that law, and that new cage law is to go into effect, uh, I believe, 2022. So I think that was terrible. It was one of my big motivations to run for office against the incumbent who had voted for that up here. And so fast forward then, suddenly um, we get a lot of the smaller chicken producers, egg layers, go out of business because they can't afford the cost changes And so the whole industry is consolidated now into several very, very large operations, some, you know, coming close to 30 million birds, um, and they can afford these changes. They're the only game in town. Um, They have asked for some delays in the implementation, and that hadn't gotten through before. And meanwhile, their industry itself that they're members of 
you know, their associations, um, decided, you know what, let's just switch everybody nationwide to cage-free. So that's going to happen in 2025. So suddenly now we have a law we passed that's actually <laughs> they asked for, but now is going to be behind the times if you want to look at it that way. And so they had to come to us and say, please, you need to change this law and put out this date that our industry is asking for for cage-free. And I strenuously objected to doing that at all because I don't believe it's appropriate, and I think this demonstrates why it's inappropriate, for the legislature to put these kind of restrictions for an industry and for their associations directly in the law. If we hadn't done in 09 and said what we did, then this would be a non-issue because their association is already moving cage sizes and going to cage-free, et cetera. And so it's just wrong for us to be doing this kind of nitty-gritty policy work in there like that when the industry is so busy changing and fluctuating and because we basically put out a majority of the egg-laying producers in this state by doing this, and we gave monopoly powers to the few that are left. Well, do the animal rights people want cage-free hens? Is that what they want? So, of course, there's many who do. Um, HSUS ultimately wants there to be no egg-laying production going on whatsoever. Um, I mean, that's really their their goal. Um, you, you mean know, completely so, wipe out eggs? We won't have eggs anymore? Yeah, they don't believe in animal agriculture. I mean, oh. they don't say that, and they don't go for it all in one fell swoop. But if you get into the upper echelons of the organization, you read Wayne Pacelli's books, then you'll see that's where they're headed. That's their goals. These are the people that advertise on television late at night and show you sad pu- pictures of puppies, but then less than 1% of the money they raise ever gets to help those puppies. Uh, most of it goes to salaries for their lawyers and lobbyists. Well, let me ask, uh, these small uh, egg-laying operations that were forced out of business by the 2009 yep. law, yep. Would, would they find, in other words, moving to cage-free uh, egg-laying uh, even worse for them? I mean, I almost think, well, if we don't have to worry about the size of our cages, we can just go out in the open like everybody else. Maybe they could open back up again. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, it would, you'd wish it would be that simple, but think about the, having 30 million chickens in an open, free-range situation. What's, that's not actually cage-free. <laughs> free-range, uh, I mean, cage, cage-free is not actually cage-free. It's just really, really big cages. I got you. Okay, well, listen, uh, honestly, we could keep talking about this. It's unbelievable how complex it is. Thank you so much, Senator Ed McBroom. You gave a great explanation. We'll see what happens on this legislation moving forward. Maybe we can get you back to talk about it and some other things. You do a great job. Thank you, Senator Ed McBroom. Thanks, Bill. Be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have another state senator on the line. We had Senator Ed McBroom earlier on other issues, but I want to talk to Senator Tom Barrett, who is a Republican from the 24th State Senate District, and that is Eaton County, which is just west of Lansing, Clinton County, just north of Lansing, Chiawassee County, northeast of Lansing, and he's got like Williamston and a couple of townships in the northeastern corner of Ingham County in his district, too. Um, He used to be centered in Potterville, but maybe now it's Charlotte. What is it? Senator Tom Barrett. 
Yes, uh, thank you, Bill. Yep, live uh, near Charlotte. Uh, you know, uh, have uh, three little kids now, so we kind of outgrew our oh, house in Oh, okay. I got you. My wife and I uh, purchased when we got married, and uh, uh, we uh, moved to Charlotte about two years ago, uh, uh, a little while after my youngest daughter was born. Okay, well, I've I got to keep uh, track of all the wanderings of you legislators within your <laughs> district when you change homes. Do you have a right to do that? Uh, no, no question. Look, I want to talk to you just a little bit because you are, as I understand it, chairman of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Corrections. And I know that your counterpart in the House, Representative Tom Albert, he uh, wrote an article in MLive newspapers this past week uh, expressing his frustration about Governor Gretchen Whitmer prohibiting the Department of Corrections from communicating with his office about the budget over the summer. And as a result, uh, instead of informing a legislature of imbalance in a particular account, I think it was special equipment, the governor decided to keep uh, him in the dark, uh, presumably maybe to use as a bargaining chip as part of her overall strategy to not consider any budget from the legislature unless it included money for fix the damn roads, which we've heard about. So I wanted to ask you, did you experience some of the same uh, non-response from the governor's administration about corrections and how do you look at yeah. the corrections budget now going forward? What's going on? Yes. Um, no, that was an important point that uh, Chairman Albert made about um, the, uh, the gag order that the governor put on her administrative officials uh, relative to us. Um, moving through the budget process. And we had passed in the Senate um, our version of the budget back in May or June, and the House had done the same thing at about the same time. And there were discrepancies between the two chambers that they generally had some some similar uh, uh, impact. Um, We could have passed a budget to the governor early in the summer. In, In June or July, we definitely had the votes to do that. But out of respect for the governor, we did not in, in an attempt to try and negotiate with her on this priority she had relative to road funding. And it's a shared priority by the administration as well as us in the legislature. The difference is, of course, how we achieve that. And we had put together a budget that, again, we could have sent her, but out of respect for the governor and continuing to negotiate, we did not. Meanwhile, she was, of course, going around the state telling folks that we were taking the summer off and kind of coming after us and taking shots that I felt were unnecessary and rather juvenile at the legislature. Uh, We came back into session in September. Um, We have a constitutional obligation to pass a balanced state budget. As lawmakers, we take that very seriously. The governor wasn't really budging on her uh, 45-cent gas tax proposal. We did not want to have the budget held hostage by that, so we moved forward with passing a balanced budget with input between both chambers, the House and the Senate, working together to reconcile our differences. And we would have liked to have had input from the administration, from the Department of Corrections and the other various state departments that have their budgets affected by this. And as we reached out to them for assistance in crafting the final budget, uh, we received word that um, that they were not going to be participating in that, that the governor had put a gag order out that prohibited their communicating with us. Well, so in other words, the gag order from the governor and her administration really came late in September. I mean, before that, in the spring, for instance, when you were putting the budget together initially, uh, the Department of Corrections was cooperative up to that time? 
time? Is that what you're saying? Well, they um, they did come in and present to our committee. Uh, I can't speak for, for on the House side, but I assume it was similar there where we had a, uh, a presentation from the department, basically that um, drilled down from the governor's recommendation that she rolled out uh, back in the, in the early part of the spring, which is when she announced her 45-cent gas tax plan. As budget subcommittees, we started digging into the specific budgets for each department, and at that point, we did get uh, a presentation from the department. We started crafting our budget. I went out and visited a prison, uh, looked at some of the uh, vocational village skill trade opportunities that they were providing, um, tried to educate myself on the issues, uh, took testimony from different stakeholders in our subcommittee, and then we crafted our draft budget. The House did their draft budget. Um, and then um, ultimately, as we were trying to put the final touches on the budget, the governor put that gag order out um, in September that prohibited uh, uh, us or prohibited her officials from communicating with us in the legislature. So in other words, do you think, let's say in June, you mentioned earlier, let's say the House had passed their version of the corrections budget, the Senate had uh, passed its version. You think that if the governor had not been insisting on coupling the budget with uh, adequate funding, $2.5 billion for fix the damn roads, that you probably could have come to an agreement with the House um, as the House and Senate did for eight years under Governor Snyder and probably gotten a budget tour by the end of June. Oh, absolutely. With, without a doubt. I mean, we are not in a time like the last budget stalemate we had during Governor Granholm's tenure where we had just absolutely devastating uh diminished revenue coming into the state and you know it was like the titanic and everybody trying to jump on a lifeboat uh that wasn't the that is not the position that we're in as a state currently we actually had more revenue than we had last year um in governor snyder's final budget that we passed in the summer of 2018 um, no one really batted an eyelash. It was just a, a, a thing that the legislature had taken on, had passed, the governor signed into law, and it was it became an expectation of the citizens of the state that this would be done well ahead of time and in a timely and responsible fashion. Um, I think the bill uh, in 2018, Governor Snyder's final budget year, I think it got 32 or 33 votes of support in the state Senate. So it was overwhelmingly bipartisan. For them to come in this year and have more revenue in the budget and more things that get funded, increases in funding for a number of different priorities for the administration and other things, an extra $400 million going into roads, highest ever in the history of the state. We're now spending over $5 billion on roads that was appropriated. Uh, for them to claim that this is an irresponsible budget now, in my opinion, doesn't really uh, ring true based on their behaviors just a year ago. Well, let me, let me ask you, in early <clears throat> September, uh, the governor, as you know, all of a sudden, after like six months of insisting she would not accept any budget from the legislature without the $2.5 billion in money for fixing the damn roads, uh, reverse course and said, okay, I'm going to decouple uh, the mm-hmm. fix the damn roads issue from the budget. Go ahead and send me a bit. Uh, budget because I'm afraid of, you know, government shutdown and October 1st is looming and, you know, these school Mm -hmm. districts are okay. So uh, at that point, why would she uh, put a muzzle or a gag on her departments Mm -hmm. and not let them work with you on a budget because she'd already said, okay, let's get the budget done. 
Uh, right. A, a corrections doesn't have anything to do with. I can see how she might have been angry that the Senate or the legislature sent her four hundred million dollars for roads because she wanted that negotiated later as part of the fix the damn roads component. Uh, you can argue she should have accepted it anyway, but you can at least make an intellectual argument that fine, okay, I understand that. But what does that have to do with corrections? Why did right. she have to put a gag order on her people? Why? Yeah, and that was uh, very confusing to us. She did it, to your point, uh, shortly after Labor Day, um, put out a joint statement with the Speaker and the Senate Majority Leader saying, hey, we're agreeing to lay aside the, the debate on a 45-cent gas tax, and we are going to complete this year's budget in a balanced and responsible way. The the three you know major parties, you know, the governor, the House, and the Senate, are going to come together and, and pass a responsible budget and a timeline to get this done to avoid a government shutdown. And we were relieved by that in the legislature. And then within a few days' time, she had reversed that reversal. So originally she was insistent on not doing it. Then she said she would, and then she went back and said she wouldn't again, and that's when the gag order came into effect. Wow. Well, we could keep talking about this, as you know, and it still isn't resolved. I mean, we're more than a month after the start of the fiscal year, and uh, an agreement between the governor and the legislature has not been made on the budget. But look, Senator Tom Barrett, you did a great job of explaining your situation from the standpoint of a subcommittee chairman. Thank you so much, Senator Tom Barrett. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with something completely different from everything we have talked about on the program so far, and it is Michigan's female legislators. Let's think about this for a minute. This year, and I don't think as much has been made about this as should have This is the centennial, the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which gave females, women, the right to vote for the first time, beginning with the election of 1920. Uh, And in connection with this, the Michigan Political History Society decided we're going to have a dinner honoring all female legislators who have served in Michigan's legislature from 1920 to the present. Now, we're talking about 100 years. This is fascinating to me because looking at the list of women who were elected to the Michigan legislature, to the State House of Representatives, and to the Senate beginning in the 1920s until the present day, we are talking about approximately 210 women. Now, that may sound like a lot, but, I mean, the number of men during that same 100-year period is in the thousands. So that is what I think is most important about this particular centennial year and about the 100 years preceding it, uh, because women even though they got the vote in 1920, they could go vote for the first time, they didn't automatically start getting elected to office at any level. 
certainly not federal level and not even at state level and maybe, yes, at local level. But let me just give you an idea of how slowly the ranks of women lawmakers increased over the first half century of the 100 years. In other words, between 1920 and 1970. I'll give you an example. In the 1920s, there were only two women in that entire decade who were elected to the Michigan legislature. There was a woman named Eva McCall Hamilton, who was from Memphis, Michigan, uh, which is over in Macomb County. And she served one two-year term in the state Senate. At that time, the state Senate had two-year terms. 1921-1922, even McCall Hamilton. And then in 1924, a woman named Cora Reynolds Anderson, sounds like a very conventional either English or Swedish name, uh, from Lance, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, was elected to the House for a single two-year term. She served in 1925-26. And by the way, the House office building in Lansing, across from the state capitol, is named after her, the Anderson House office building. But what was really interesting about Representative Anderson is that she was a member of the Chippewa tribe, and she was an addition of French and English ancestry. Uh, She was, you know, I believe the first female... Uh, elected anywhere to a state legislature in the entire country who was a Native American, an Indian, or at least partially Indian. She was the first woman, the first Native American woman elected to the Michigan House of Representatives and in the entire United States. She concentrated on public welfare. She served as chair of the Industrial Home for Girls Committee, And as I said, the House office building is named in her honor. But again, Eva Hamilton and Cora Anderson were the only two women elected in the 1920s. In the 1930s, three were elected. In the 1940s, four were elected. In the 1950s, five were elected. In the 1960s, six were elected. Think of the symmetry there. Two in the 20s, three in the 30s, four in the 40s, five in the 50s, six in the 60s. And by the way, they were split pretty evenly between Republicans and Democrats over time, although as you got later in time, more toward the present day, up into the 60s, more Democrats were getting elected as women than Republicans were getting elected as women. Uh, By 1970, in other words, over a 50-year period, half a century, from 1920 when women got the vote until 1970, there were only a total of 20 women who had served in the legislature during that entire time. And yet, in the 50 years after that, from 1970 until now, this year and through the end of next year, the second half century— Some 180 women have been elected over that time. I mean, the numbers started to really go up 
in the 1970s. It went up to around 12. And then in the 80s, it actually plateaued. It stayed about the same. But in the 90s, it exploded. Uh, in the first decade of the 20th century, it really exploded. And beginning in the decade, starting with 2010, up through the present day, it is huge. I mean, there are uh, 70 women elected since 2010 to the Michigan legislature, as opposed to only 20 who were elected all the time between 1920 through 1970. So a huge difference um, in participation by women. I would say uh, today uh, women uh, obviously are more than holding their own. You've got a Democratic uh, leader of the House, a caucus, Christine Gregg uh, from Farmington Hills, a woman, Democrat. She's the leader of the House Democrats. The first leader of a House caucus uh, who was a woman was Diane Byram uh, back in uh, 2002 to 2006. She is now the chair of the Michigan State University Board of Trustees. And she also, uh, between stints in the state house, was a state senator. So she was the first woman to really make her mark as a leader, a woman in leadership. Uh, Although at the time that she was leader, the Democrats were in the minority in the House. So she was never Senate or House majority leader or speaker, and no woman has ever been a speaker of the state house, nor a Senate majority leader. I'm sure that day will come, but it's taken a hundred years to get to the point where we can say we have approximately over time, over this first century, since women got the vote in 1920, about 210 women who have served at one time or another. Uh, We don't have that much more to talk about today. I will just ask this question about the ongoing budget crisis in Lansing. Is it reasonable for legislative Republicans to insist the governor give them insurance that she won't divert future supplemental budget funds through the administrative board process? I would say despite the frustration of everybody who's not getting the money they should be getting in the current fiscal year budget, the answer to that question is that it is not only reasonable for the legislature to insist that the governor give them assurance she won't divert funds, it is absolutely essential. Because at this point, trust between Governor Whitmer and legislative leaders has been shattered. The legislative branch of government needs to have some legal guarantee that appropriations it has sent to the governor will, unless vetoed, be spent as lawmakers intended them to be spent as they have been for 180 years, dating back to 1837 when Michigan became a state, before Governor Whitmer's actions early this month. I think it all depends on what form the legal guarantee happens, uh, what form it takes. 
What aces does the governor hold in the current uncompleted budget impasse? I would say uh, she doesn't hold any unless it's the legal guarantee that we just commented on. That's all I have for this week. We've covered a lot of territory. We've talked about livestock, egg laying, aggregates, gravel, corrections, female legislators over a century. That's a lot of territory. Thank you for listening. Be back next week.